AI, 5G, the cloud, the future of social, autonomous vehicles, big data, digital innovations, startups, academia, changes in society, and everything in between. If it's to do with tech, we'll be covering it. Hi, welcome to the Tech Podcast by Huawei in London, a new series where each episode will be giving you the lowdown on all things tech, from incredible innovations to the opportunities they bring. So, welcome and thank you for downloading the first episode of a two-parter called The Economic Reboot, a recent event organised by Huawei London. In these two podcasts, we'll be exploring the key questions for everyone in the tech sector today. How can technology drive the economic recovery? In this episode, you'll hear from former Secretary of State for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport, the Right Honourable Karen Bradley MP, and serial entrepreneur and philanthropist Sherry Kutu CBE. They tell us what needs to happen for Britain to further build upon digital infrastructure so technology can propel the economy out of the COVID slump. They were recently interviewed by journalist Daisy McAndrew. Joining me now for my first chat is somebody who's been at the heart of government, big decisions in government regarding technological infrastructure. She served as the Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport and is now the Chair of the Commons Procedure Committee, the Right Honourable Karen Bradley MP. Karen, a very good morning and a warm welcome to you. Thanks, Daisy, and nice to see you. Karen, if we might do a little bit of uh, reflection on the last year, Obviously, the pandemic has affected all of us in some way in our lives. But I wonder what it's taught you and those in government about the role of tech in our lives. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, who would have thought we would experience what we have over the last uh, more than 12 months now? And if the title of this conference is how tech can help the economy, well, um, tech has meant that we have an economy to help. If it hadn't been for technology, I suspect we would be we would have been unable, first of all, to lock down the way we did. And we wouldn't have the businesses ready to get going again now as we come out of lockdown. So, you know, the very fact that we have the interminable Zoom and Teams calls, which we've all got used to, has meant that business has continued. But it's more than that. It's things like uh, the click and collect and online services. If it wasn't for online retail, there would have been real problems with food supply right at the beginning of the pandemic. And it was difficult enough to get that slot in the online supermarket. But it meant that, you know, local shops, independent shops were able to start supplying in a way they would simply not have been able to do do without technology. You've said I'm chair of the Commons Procedure Committee. If it hadn't been for technology, we wouldn't have had Parliament keep going to scrutinise the executive and to make sure that constituents concerns were heard and it's technology which none of us thought we would ever see a parliament with screens in the house of commons and uh, mps contributing and members of the house of lords contributing from across the country but that's exactly what we've had and that's meant that we've managed to have one of the few parliaments actually in, uh, in 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 the world that's sat every week it was supposed to sit uh, something we should be very proud of 
But I suppose it's also shown where technology has deficiencies. So the first, I think, is the merging of private and public life or work life and, and home life. Uh, you never get away from it. Zoom calls happen at the weekend. They happen very late in the evening. They don't stop. People never leave their desks. And for the first time ever, you're getting an insight into the homes of the people you work with. Uh, and in the case of MPs, the, the, the homes of those that represent you. It's also shown um, really, and you know, I represent a very rural constituency, the deficiencies of our digital infrastructure. There's no doubt about it. We don't have a digital infrastructure at the moment that is fit for homeschooling and homeworking for so much of the population. And I think those are the areas that we need to focus on. And then finally, just the deficiencies of the software, spontaneity and human interaction is really difficult. And things have improved. I mean, for goodness sake, if you think back to how it was 12 months ago, it was amazing to think that we would have hands up and uh, to speak and thumbs up on your Zoom call and all those other things. But we're also very used to you're on mute. So I think we know now that there are incredible deficiencies with the software, which we need to work on. Because I guess what you're saying is it's shown us our utter reliance on technology. And of course, therefore, it's shown that there are haves and have nots. There is a digital divide. Absolutely. Uh, I think this has really come across. You know, you, you watch TV, you'll see journalists who are presenting news stories from their bedrooms. You can see it's their bedrooms. Uh, so, so people don't have the living arrangements to allow for a fully digital well, but also how many times has it pixelated? How many times has it gone? Uh, have you been unable to connect because there simply isn't the digital infrastructure? And I think that the big lesson for me, and the, the big thing that we have to take away from this is that we've got to improve our digital infrastructure. And I suppose finally skills. People have got a lot more uh, adept at using the technology, but there's no doubt that the digital skill divide is, is really significant. And homeschooling in particular has brought that home in a way where we've seen that some young people, yes, they have the technology and they have the, the, the access to the internet and they've been able to do their best with their lessons. It's never as good as being in the classroom. But there's many, many young people that simply don't have access to that. And, and, you know, I saw when I was culture secretary that the use of libraries was increasing because that was where young people who were from deprived backgrounds were getting access to digital infrastructure. The libraries were closed and that simply wasn't possible. And Karen, do you think that there's a sense that now that the politicians themselves have had to rely on that technology in their rural constituencies or wherever they've been working from home, from has really rammed home to them the importance of that instead of them all working from Westminster as they used to do where they have fantastic internet access and so on. I wish the House of Commons was that fantastic for internet access. It's actually one of the poorest places in the country because of the structure of the building. But that's irrelevant. I mean, the House of Commons operated before this by people seeing each other physically, and that's not been possible. But it, of course, has brought this home. And I would say there's a few things that, for me, I would like to see. I mean, you know, we're talking about that green recovery. Well, technology has to be part of that. We need to make sure we've got that internet access. And, and, and unfortunately, I think government has and regulators have relied on a value for money argument for far too long when it comes to the services that are provided. Actually, we need another incentive here for regulators, and that is the very best, fastest service that can possibly be delivered. And it's very difficult. It's not like just 
clicking a switch. You do actually have to do some really big work digging and going into the ground. And it's, it's a major infrastructure project, but it has to be done. It is absolutely worth money. We have to future proof our digital infrastructure and we have to get the right regulation for startups. We have to make sure that where startups have great ideas, they are able to access finance and they have the right regulatory structure. And we, you know, we're out of the European Union. We're not reliant now on agreeing regulations with 27 other countries. We can do what's right for the United Kingdom. We've got to be brave and we've got to do the right thing now. I just want to pick up on what you were saying about that value for money uh, issue and also your last point about being brave, because often one of the, the criticisms that's been pointed towards politicians for decades, for centuries, has been a sort of short termism because of the nature of politics being re-elected every few years. And that, that there are very few politicians or governments who are really able or willing to look at the long term because they know that expensive infrastructure projects that take years and years and years might not benefit them at the polling station. Do you think that's been fair in the past? And do you think that attitude might be changing now? It's absolutely fair in the past. Um, Shovel-ready projects are the Treasury's favourite thing, something that's ready to go, where money invested can be shown to have reap a dividend immediately. Shovel-ready takes a long time in the, in, in the making. When I was Culture Secretary, I was made Culture Secretary in 2016, and I inherited a programme, the Superfast programme, update grading the cabinets to fibre and then uh, and then shooting the fibre down the old copper wires into people's homes. That was a decision that was taken in 2009. And I inherited that in 2016. And trying to build on top of that, you can't just undo what was uh, agreed previously. I personally think it was the wrong decision back in 2009. We should have gone for full fibre to the premises, which was the technology at the time. And now we should be going into 5G as quickly as we possibly can. Because if I look at places that I represent, little villages in the Peak District, the only way we're going to get internet that's that's fast enough into those homes, and goodness me, I've had enough constituents who have suffered over the last 12 months, but the only way we're really going to get that to work now is if 5G can get into those villages and we can blast it into people's homes in a way that that means they have access to that internet. That's going to need some long-term decision-making, and I hope that's all politicians have seen the what can happen if your technology isn't good enough. Let's hope we can all come together and have some consensus around this now. And also, it's not just if your internet isn't good enough now, but thinking about as a country, how we can really leap onto these these new technologies, whether it's AI, whether it's IoT. But of course, that's that's all a bit pointless if you haven't got the 5G to conduct it on. Absolutely. Uh, there's no point developing driverless cars unless you know that you've got 5G along all of your arterial roads that driverless cars can drive along. Uh, they're pretty pointless if they can't turn off at Junction 11 of the motorway because Junction 11 isn't got a 5G on it and you can't get drive the car along it. So you've got to have this. We need to get those fibre spines along all our arterial roads. We need to get 5G technology installed, I would say, on every lamppost. If every lamppost in the country had a 5G box on it, you would have amazing ability to develop this internet of things. And I've seen this. I was culture secretary. I visited Scandinavia and saw the work that was going on there. I visited South Korea and saw what was happening there. It's light years ahead in many ways of the ambitions 
that you see in the United Kingdom. And I want us to be just as ambitious. As I say, we have that opportunity now. We, we can do regulation that's fit for us. We can change the way that the Treasury scorecard works so that actually, instead of looking simply at the short term value for money, you're looking at a longer term. We can do these things. And it's now there's the time to do it. Well, so many challenges there, so many things that the government really needs to get on top of. But Karen Bradley, thank you so much um, for setting some of those out, particularly with your experiences having been Secretary of State for Media and Culture. Thank you so much. Those are the thoughts of MP Karen Bradley. But when it comes to actually driving the economic reboot, it's businesses and entrepreneurs who will make it happen and bring to life some of the opportunities tech has to offer. Entrepreneur and investor Sherry Kutu, CBE, is an expert in the digital sector and advisor to the DCMS. Daisy McAndrew asks, what's holding us back tech-wise? Well, to make tech work, if you're given you your infrastructure, if you had all the infrastructure you needed, you need to train people. And so what's holding us back, mainly if you talk to both the large businesses and the medium-sized businesses and the small ones, is access to talent that has the right skills and training to do everything that needs to be done. And there's been some really great work done here about the need to upskill something like 90% of the people in the country so that they understand digital and how they adopt it. You spoke earlier about a digital divide, and there is a digital divide up and down the country geographically, but also between large companies and small companies. And one of the things that I've been working on is called Digital Boost. And it's around making sure that the people who work in the small companies have access to mentors, largely who have had the training in large companies so that they can adopt technologies quickly. And if you can level up uh, between the small companies and the large companies, you will have a massive increase in productivity, and a number of other things. There's 7,500 large companies in the UK. There are 1.4 million small businesses in the UK, and 70% of people in the UK work for small businesses. Yet in big businesses, the investment per person is between five and 7,000 pounds in digital upskilling. In small businesses, we found that it's between 50 and 150 pounds per year. So you can imagine the divide has been getting larger and larger over time. So creating an infrastructure to rapidly upskill on a very, very flexible basis, the people who work in small companies is, a, is, is critical. And if you were to focus on just making sure that the women who work in the small businesses participate at the same as, uh, as men, you'd have a 50 billion pound uh, GVA created, which would empower at least 40,000 new female entrepreneurs uh, and create 260,000 new businesses. There's also been some excellent research about the um, ethnicity divide as well. And there's been a great research showing that if there weren't the difference between people from a BAME background and a white background, again, huge benefits to our society would happen. So we all hear about the productivity gap, 
bridging that productivity gap can only happen if we bring the people who work in our businesses along with us. Karen talked about adopting 5G around, uh, you know, um, I think it was Junction 11. I certainly hope it's around Junction 11 near where I live. But uh, if you don't have people that understand how to, you know, what they need to do when all of the technology changes, that's a big issue. So our, what's holding us back mainly is making sure we can upskill the population of people who work in business currently. Not It's not just about what's going on in schools, all that's very, very important as well. It's what about the teachers and what about everybody who works around the country? One of the things we did with Digital Boost is worked on focusing on SMEs and making it really simple for them to understand, you know, maybe they were a wine merchant beforehand, people stopped coming to their stores. Well, how do they actually sell online? And that was actually quite difficult. The single biggest thing that government can do is to release data so that we can see these experiments that are happening up and down the country of people who are trying to upskill adults working. I think most businesses and most professional firms have schemes now to upskill people, sometimes just their employees, other times the employees of small businesses. But what's lacking at the moment is the ability, a scorecard, the ability to check if this intervention is working versus that intervention. And I think there's only there's a single solution to this. And is if the government were to be able to release the data at the request and with the permission of the owner of the data, the person who works for the SME, so that you could see whether or not this program that they tried is working for them, that grant that they received is working for them. And being able to tell it on a scientific basis, the intervention was made here and then there were three others. And the, did the revenue go up or down? Um, did, it, did it work? Um, and you need infrastructure also to be able to tell you that. 2014, I called on a scheme, the government to release data to see if the interventions for scale up companies were working. And with that, we were trying to see if the what made a company grow. And this is what made a large company grow. And because there's if a company grows and continues to grow, the productivity is greater and the revenues are greater and the GVA is greater. And if you're a government person, the tax is greater that you can you can tax. But what was happening, there was many, many, many interventions, but there wasn't a consolidated central way to tell if the interventions were working. So what we've called upon is for the government to allow the VAT data that's being collected, which is whether or not someone's buying a good or a service, and also the national insurance data to see whether or not they're hiring more people or letting off more people. If they can allow a company, a product provider to query that and say, okay, I'd like to have this grant and I'd like to receive it. And as a result of receiving this grant, they accept that the government will monitor whether or not the revenues increase after this grant. And I think that anybody who's in receipt of government aid, be it furlough, be it a visa from the home office, be it uh, a training grant uh, for building back better, I think that a small thing to ask is whether or not you would monitor whether or not their revenues went up or down afterwards. If we do that, when, then we can all learn together about what's working and what's not working. But you've got you know, a lot of people trying at the moment without the ability to assess so the assessment and the monitoring is absolutely critical. And we've got everything we need now. And I would love to see that so that we can see if as adults, we're all learning 
and therefore what's working. It's like having, I know we don't like assessments in schools, but it does allow us to see whether or not it's working. And, and we like diagnosis, you know, when we go to a doctor, but we want to know if the treatment works. If we're going to roll out treatments that help upskill people at scale, we kind of need to know if it, if it works. Um, so I would, I would call on allowing and enabling us to, um, to see that together. And am I right in thinking that there are already a couple of countries who do do this with the data available? Yes, in Denmark and Canada, from what I understand, they have, again, released the data at a central government level to, to allow you, again, even it's the other government operatives to be able to see what's going on in their local authorities. Again, it's that the data is there, it's legal to release it, but it is difficult. And you, you know, you do have a GDPR, you need permission of the person whose data it is to say, I don't mind you monitoring my data. When we surveyed the scale ups and the companies themselves and said, do you mind? They thought that that data was already being shared and they assumed that it would be. So I think that we've got the permission of the people whose data it is. And as long as we can show that we're not breaching any GDPR or privacy issues, which is a big, which is a big point, and we don't want to do that. But as long as the person grants permission, then we should, then yeah, we've got great examples from other countries. We have been leading in data and the release in data in the UK for a long time, not so much to monitor businesses. It's, I think it's time to do, uh, to do that. And Sherry, just in the last uh, few seconds that I've got with you, without wanting to uh, force you to preempt what that data might say, what lessons do you think we might learn from that data? For instance, do you think it might show us that a certain type of training is pointless, but a different type of training does make a difference, or that the type of person you train makes a difference, or you know, skills or productivity? What, what is it, in other words, that you think you might learn? I think we'll learn precisely that when when we started monitoring this at the Scale Up Institute, there were hundreds and hundreds of product providers who claimed that their solutions worked, but they were unable to provide the evidence to show that it did. And some things work and some things don't. We should experiment massively, but we need to see if those experiments are working. You're, you're testing hypotheses. If the government has funded an intervention or done a procurement with a, with a, you know with anybody, they've got to tell if it works. So yeah, I hope that helps. Well, Sherry, thank you so much. And that certainly has helped because I think many of us didn't realise that actually there was this glaring hole in evidence-based uh, data or assumptions about all these experiments that are ongoing. And I thought particularly interesting that you were saying that most businesses you've spoken to assumed that that data was being used already. And of course, we all know GDPR has brought benefits, but it's brought an awful lot more paperwork and problems as well. That is something that hopefully over time we'll get to grips with. Um, Sherry Kuti, thank you so much for um, laying out those ideas, those issues, and, and really giving, giving us some food for thought. Thank you very much. That was journalist Daisy McAndrew talking to the Right Honourable Karen Bradley MP and Sherry Kutu, CBE. That brings us to the end of part one of The Economic Reboot, our first episode of the Tech Podcast. From upskilling across all age groups, to open discussions about legislation and application and thinking bigger and at speed, we hope you found the conversation thought-provoking and insightful. Next time in part two, we'll be hearing from former BT chairman Sir Mike Rake, AI expert Katie King and IoT boss Oliver Tucker as they continue this discussion on the technical opportunities and challenges that lie ahead to reboot the economy. So remember to subscribe to hear part two as soon as it becomes available. Until then, thanks for listening and goodbye.